and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today, we're talking to Winnie Emily, author of Dark Chapter, about fictionalising real life, the similarities between writing and movies, and how creativity helped her overcome the most harrowing experience of her life. events like this change your life forever, that your life will never be the same as it was the day before it happens, or even two hours before it happens, when I stood waiting for that bus out of Belfast, along the Falls Road to the west of the city. Is it melodramatic to think of life like that, of a clean split struck straight down the breadth of your existence, severing your first 29 years from all the years that come after? I look across that gap now, an unexpected rift in the contour of my life, and I long to shout across that ravine to the younger me, who stands on the opposite edge, oblivious to what lies ahead. She is a distant speck. She seems lost from my perspective, but in her mind she thinks she knows where she's going. There is a hiking guidebook in her hand and a path that she is following. It will lead here, up this slope, and then along the edge of a plateau to gain the higher ground, merging with the hills above the city. She does not know who follows her. She's only thinking of the path ahead. But some things she cannot anticipate. I stand now on this side of the ravine, desperate to warn my earlier self of the person trailing her, skulking from bush to tree in her wake. Stop, I want to shout. It's not worth it. Just give up the trail and go home. But she wouldn't listen anyway. She's too stubborn, too determined to hike this trail in a day this crisp and clear. And now it's too late. She is an isolated country, and even if she were to turn back, she would inevitably encounter him, because he is behind her, watching her. By now she has traversed the slope and found the trail that runs between a sunlit pasture and the steep incline of the glen. She pauses for a moment, breathing in the beauty of this green track, the tree branches arching over the path, the bright field that stretches to her left. She's escaped the city. This is where the countryside really begins. It seems like a little bit of heaven for one last peaceful moment. But she is perched on the edge, and to her right, the ground plunges sharply into the ravine. The river below was a distant roar. The air up here smells of manure and sun and warm grass, and lazy insects drift in the filtered light beneath the trees. And then, glancing down the wooded chasm to her right, she sees a figure coming up the slope, trying to hide in the brush of the forest. Something skips unnaturally in the beat of her heart. Only then does she realize she's being followed. Now, years later, it is as if I am the one following my earlier self, haunting her every step like some guardian angel arrived too late. She parts the branches in front of her, and I do it too, invisibly. She quickens her pace to lengthen the distance between them, and I fall in step. She instinctively knows she must reach the open ground before he catches her, so she tries to cover the last few yards of the path as it clears a ridge. With an invisible hand, I want to hold back the little bastard, lock him into position like a rugby player, while shouting to her to keep on going, to reach the meadow, and then abandon the trail. Forget about the hike, just head straight to the busy road and go home. But I am powerless to stop it. Events must unfold as they already have. The past is our past. So I am stranded here on this side of the ravine, watching as he catches up to her. I don't want to see the rest of it. I've replayed it enough times already. If I could just freeze it there, in that final moment, perched between the sunlit pasture and the plunging abyss, then everything would still be fine. 
only then it would not be my life. It would be someone else's pleasant stroll through the Irish countryside in a spring afternoon. But my journey turned out to be a little different. Um, Winnie, thank you so much for joining us on the Riff Raff podcast today. Um, it's such an honour to have you with us. Um, for those of our listeners who haven't read Dark Chapter yet, could you give us a bit of an overview um, of what it's about? So I generally describe Dark Chapter as being about a crime, which you see equally from the point of view of the victim and the perpetrator. So it basically, if you look at a crime and the two people that are connected by this, who are complete strangers otherwise, it looks at how their lives cross and what their lives were like before that crime and how they're affected for the rest of their lives as a result of that one event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's absolutely brilliant. For anyone who hasn't read it yet, I can't <laughs> recommend enough okay. to go out and get Great. a copy because it's <laughs> so good. Um, so, obviously, um, it is an incredibly written book, but um, it covers the very harrowing, I would imagine, experience of your rape. It's, it is a fictionalised book, but it is based on your own experience of being yeah. raped mm-hmm. in Ireland. Um it brings, obviously, rape to the front and centre of social consciousness, which is incredibly vital. I want to ask you a little bit about how you approached writing the book. Is it something that um, you thought, right, I'm ready to write this now? Or was there a gradual build-up um, over the course of time and you came slowly to it? So I guess there was a gradual build-up, um, but then when I reached that point, I was pretty much like, right, I'm ready to write this now. So the idea for the book actually happened only a few days, well, a few weeks after my own rape. So mm. I'd say, so I, the, my own assault took place in April 2008. Um, so I'd say a few weeks after that, I just sat down and I started writing randomly, um, because I'm a writer, and that's what I do. And um, yeah, and then like the prologue just really came out. So the, pa- the few paragraphs that are the prologue, um, which you'll hear, um, are, are just these things that I wrote, these words I wrote um, right after my assault. So I just remember thinking, like, oh, where did that come from, right? Um, and also, I was like, that's pretty good, actually. So, and just bear in mind, after my assault, I was in this post-traumatic haze. I was in complete shock and I had lots of anxiety and depression. So I completely didn't feel like I was me um, after that kind of trauma. And then to be able to sit down and write something like that, which just sort of came out of the blue, I was like, Okay, there's something reassuring about that because I felt like, okay, if I, if despite everything that's happened, if I'm still able to write, then on some level, actually, I'm still me. Um, so that was quite reassuring, but I also knew that I wasn't going to be in any state to really write this fictional um, exploration of the, of the, of the accounts um, until um, until I was actually recovered. So I just basically like put that to the side, kept on coming up with ideas for the book, but I just didn't actually try to write it until about five and a half years after the assaults. Mm. Yeah. Do, do you think it was a sort of a subconscious thing? that your subconscious was sort of trying to process it and, and, and it was coming out in your writing? Or was it more of a, a sort of catharsis for you? Writing the novel? Mm. Um, no, I mean, I would say... I mean, a lot of people ask me, was it therapeutic to write the novel, which was inspired by my own trauma? Um, I actually had to recover before I was able to write it. So I, I kind of went through a lot of therapy. I mean, the legal, the legal process finished, and I went through a lot of therapy, and I had to rebuild my life. Um, so by the time I started writing it, uh, which was five and a half years after the assault, I mean, it, it, was, it was very conscious, right? Um, so I had to think a lot about craft and all these other questions that a fiction writer has to think about um and I so I actually quit my job I was living I was living in Singapore at the time 
actually earning a decent amount of money doing a creative <laughs> job, and I just quit that because I'm like, you know what? I now I feel like I'm ready to write that book. So I moved back to London and enrolled in the creative writing masters at Goldsmiths, and I did that master specifically so I could write this book. And uh, were you writing while you were doing that masters? Yeah. Were you were you were writing it kind of as you were learning? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Right, so so you, you were mentioning about kind of the questions and stuff that you were asking in the process of writing it. Um, I read about two that you've mentioned, um, which was what was it? What what could possibly drive a boy like that at fifteen years old to commit a crime, of such a, of such violence against a stranger? And does he have any idea of the impact he's had on your life? Yeah. And um, how do you feel like you tackled? answering those questions for the purposes of the novel? I mean, I guess I, I had those questions, so those two questions kind of haunted me throughout, of course. you know, my life, essentially, since the assault. Um, and then I was like, okay, so I want to answer them. So I, I wrote the novel, and I suppose they are an answer, but I guess the benefit of it being fiction was, like, I didn't have to do that much research into the real-life individual, and at least that, writing the fiction, I may explore the answers to those questions. So... I mean, I, I guess I'm I'm happy with it. It's, I'm never gonna know because that's there's a real life person and this is fiction, yeah. and I'm not really at this point even trying to represent that person in real life. Um, but I mean, the, a lot of reactions I've gotten from other readers have been that um, well, they were really drawn into Johnny's voice and his perspective as as kind of unsettling as it was because nobody really you know necessarily wants to go into the mindset of a 15 year old rapist. Um, but a lot of people were drawn into his voice, um, and some people felt really sorry for him. Um, so, and I've had a whole range of different reader responses to that character. Um, but that was kind of what I was trying to push the boundaries of, because I guess I was trying to ask readers, okay, can can you feel sympathy, or can we start thinking about rapists or other kinds of perpetrators in a, in a human way? Understanding kind of like potential reasons why they'd be that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. What a complicated thing to write. Mm, he's very much a, a product of his environment, is, is sort of what yeah. struck me. Yeah, and I think that's what you have to say about probably most criminals, right? I mean, is somebody born a rapist? Is there a gene for that? Probably not. I'm sure there's maybe some genetic contribution to different kinds of behaviour, but very much it comes from your environment. And if he'd been born into a different environment and raised very differently, he probably wouldn't have, you know, raped me, I suppose, in real life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you said that... You started writing the prologue very quickly, you then put it away and, and came back to it once you felt recovered and, and able to, to yeah. tackle it. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your structure, because the first first part, we learn the fact of, of the character's rape right from the outset, mm -hmm. and then you have masterfully, I have to say, um, ramped up the tension up until the event of the rape itself. Just, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. How did you approach that? Was that... You know, how did you consciously keep the tension building? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, thanks. That's nice to hear, <laughs> first of all, because, I mean, sometimes you're like, I don't know what I'm doing, if this is going to work or not. But, um, but so, obviously, I, I wrote the prologue where you get pretty much an applied sense of what's about to happen. Like, I don't use the words rape or anything, but you also, I mean, the, the prologue's written from the point of view of the victim who is still alive, so you're assuming okay, she's not dead, she hasn't been killed, so what kind of assault is this? So it's probably a rape. Um, but I don't really kind of say it outright. And then and then I basically jump back to both characters' lives from, from childhood, and then I kind of move back and forth between Vivian and Johnny as they're, as they're growing up and as they're kind of growing, moving towards that moment when their lives will collide. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe the, the concept for that came from... I mean, it's a number of different things. Like, we see that in movies all the time, right? Um, 
bizarrely um, on Chesil Beach by Ian McEwan, which is a totally different kind of book, um, actually had, you know, it looks at two characters um, and, you know, and it moves around a specific moment, which is their wedding night. Um, but then it looks at their past and it kind of implies what's going to happen in the future. It looks at their future a bit. So I kind of like that idea of taking a single moment, two characters and, and moving towards that. Um, and one of the reasons why I felt it was important to obviously show their childhood and their development before before the actual crime is because you're supposed to then try to understand why they act the way they do. So why does Johnny act as violent? Well, you get glimpses of his childhood and you see how, how his father's beaten him and how, as an Irish traveler, he's been treated really badly by kind of the rest of society. You get a sense that Vivian loves hiking and she's kind of an independent woman, but she takes great joy in being in the outdoors on her own. Um, and then when it comes to the actual assaults, um, that's a really weird inspiration. I often, it's the car chase scene from the Born Supremacy, right? <laughs> which everyone's like, what? You know, so, um, which, by the way, is like an amazing car chase sequence um, on in film. But, uh, so you're watching, and basically, if you are if you watch that sequence, it moves back and forth between, you know, Jason Bourne, who's driving a car, and this Russian assassin, right? And, and it, and, and the that exact scene. Right? Yeah. It's an amazing scene, right? Yeah. And I kept, I'm like, in love with that scene. I kept on watching it. And what makes it so compelling is because the editing moves really quickly as it gets closer, as, as the race kind of wraps up. I mean, a car chase wraps up. The editing moves, cuts back and forth really quickly between the two characters. So anyway, so for my novel, I'm like, okay, we get glimpses of Johnny and Vivian from childhood, and then they end up in the same park together, and then they actually meet. So I kind of wanted to do that same thing and cut back and forth really closely between them. And at first, Vivian's like, what, what is this kid about? You know, why is he asking me questions? And he's just kind of like being a bit creepy. Um, and then when Vivian starts realizing that she's in danger, I just wanted to cut back and forth really quickly into their mindset. And then when the actual assault happens, um, it's done in a quite who's impressionist way um where you, it's basically just stream of consciousness and i felt that was important because a lot of times when you see rape and sexual assault on screen or even in books it's done in a very kind of coherent way um you know with complete sentences and that's not really realistic in mm. terms of when you're experiencing that yourself um nothing happens in complete sentences it's literally just fragments of thoughts so i kind of wanted to do something that was maybe more reflective of the actual experience of of sexual assault, I suppose. It's it's for anyone who wants to write a book and and create a very dramatic scene. I I would recommend reading that passage because it it just the way you use structure, shortening the paragraphs that each of them are allotted, get it, it speeds it up, speeds it up, speeds it up, and it's just it works so well. Do you think that because obviously your background's in kind of film production and stuff mm. like that? Do you and you obviously mentioned all the, the film kind of scenes that you have in your head and stuff. Do you do you think that's obviously that kind of backgrounds helps you kind of use in your writing to kind of visualize things and to you think that's something that you've taken to, into the writing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's. I mean, so for years I've, I've worked as a film producer before my own rape, right? And I actually had the red carpet premiere of a film I worked on the day after my oh rape. My so that was kind of a unfortunate collision of worlds. Um, but you still went. I did go. <laughs> yeah. I did enjoy it, but I was just kind of like, I'm going to that film premiere, and then I'm like, well, what? And I was just like a walking zombie, basically, on the red carpet. But um, but yeah, no, I think definitely having that background in film helps in a lot of ways. I mean, like I said, with, with getting inspiration from The Born Supremacy, yeah. um, editing is very much editing and film is very much the same thing that you're doing as an author in terms of deciding like when to start a scene and 
when to finish it and uh, what perspective are you going to see the scene from. So obviously we sometimes we see the same events from Johnny and Vivian's perspectives and that's, you know, having worked in film, it's easier to kind of visualize what would it look like if that was sort of a, ca a camera angle, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so uh, for years as a film producer, I had to read film scripts and just realize and just say, like, figure out what was working for a film script and what wasn't working. So you become very conscious of dialogue yeah. and because um, film scripts, like, very much thrive on dialogue. Um, and you just realize, OK, you can't really get away with bad or clunky dialogue or dialogue that's too on the nose because it's not really believable. Um, yeah. And then this thing about um, getting into a scene as late as possible and getting out as early as possible, which not every director does and not every writer does either. But that's sort of a general rule. And I think as audiences and as readers, we're kind of aware of when a scene is is just kind of like treading water because, you know, we don't really need to be seeing everything. We just need to see the core of what's happening sometimes. Yeah. So so that all those kinds of, um, I guess, tips definitely did sit in the back of my mind when I was writing fiction. So it helps with like for as a good tip is to watch films and to watch the story structure of that and kind of apply that to your to writing as well. Yeah, I suppose if that's the kind of writer you want to be, I suppose. I mean, there there are obviously other kinds of writers who do who flout all those rules. But I mean, I think especially if you're trying to appeal to a wider audience, audiences these days are used to film and television because everybody watches it. So yeah. the way we perceive story is pretty much affected by what we see on screen. I think. Of course, of course. And so, um, what and talking about advice, what advice do you have for aspiring writers? who want to write about their own personal experiences and in particular kind of harrowing experiences? Um, I would say just try to be creative about how you're approaching it. Um, I think for me, like it, people always ask me, oh, it must have been really painful to write about your own trauma. And yes, it was um, mainly when I was just writing Vivian scenes, because when I was recounting kind of the aftermath of, of her rape, um, I'm like, well, I'm really kind of reliving the worst episodes of my life, right? Yes, um, but then I was actually able to balance that out by running Johnny scenes, because as unpleasant the character as Johnny is, just that, that process of creating a new character and trying to invest him with some humanity was in some ways a bit more redeeming and more interesting for me, I suppose, as a writer. So if I had just written kind of a straight memoir, that wouldn't have been as interesting for me. Um, so I think if you if you want to write your own about your own trauma, yeah, absolutely, you have the experience and you have the emotions that you can invest in in what you write. But try to be as creative as possible with it, I suppose. Yeah. And how does it feel to have your book out in the world? Um, great, obviously. You know, I mean, I think anybody that you know wants to be a writer, you know, dreams of the day when like the box arrives at home and they open it up. That sort of like George McFly moment um, from Back to the Future. <laughs> Except I didn't write like a love story in space or something. Right? I can't remember what that. Never say never. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. So it is amazing to actually have your own writing and like be in book form and then see it on on you know on shelves and bookstores you feel like a bit of a dork because you walk into like water stands you're like that's my book that's my book right? that is we've all done <laughs> we've, all, we've all been there getting copies off the shelf putting them onto the bestseller tables at the front of the shop selfies like so, in the very back shelf where yeah. it is yeah <laughs> um, we've yeah. all done it I think but, it's no it's great I mean especially um I mean I love doing events um which is why I'm looking forward to riffraff but um I also really um I really, you know, like getting feedback from readers. So I've had a lot of readers, especially survivors, have, have you know, read my book and emailed me or tweeted and said, like, I think, you know, it's, it's a really important book. And I've never felt, I've never read a book that's as accurate in its portrayal of the aftermath of that kind of trauma, um, which was kind of one of the reasons I read the book, because I wanted to, um, you know, I wanted to do justice to the survivor's experience and show her path or his path to recovery. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's incredibly kind of, 
it's heartwarming, I suppose, to, to hear readers yeah. come back to me with that. And, and you've talked about how, and, and, the, and the, the, even the, you know, the structure of the book represents it, how you feel that there was, you had your life before you were raped and mm. your life after you've yeah. been raped. How does it feel to, to have, I mean, it's, obviously it's an unexpected, to say the least, turn in your life that's yeah. taken you on a path that you, I can't believe you ever could have you know, imagined happening to you. And now you are an activist, you're an advocate for survivors of rape. How does that feel to, to take on that? You know, is that, do you feel pressure or do you feel like it's it's something that you could at least do to try and make sense of your experience? Or something that you have to do. Mm. Probably all three, right? And like, I'm obviously, I'm not saying that everyone who's been raped needs to then become an activist, but I think if I look at my personality, um, I'm not the kind of person that would kind of experience an injustice and be like okay right that's just the way things are right um because I've always been quite hung up on issues of social justice um and having worked as a film producer before I was like okay I basically you know I didn't make it wasn't a conscious decision but it was kind of a realization of how can I use kind of experience and the skills and the skills that I have from my life before my rape to to try to bring about positive change on this issue so that's what kind of why I started the Clear Lines Festival to try to create a space to bring together artists and activists who want to be engaged on this issue um yeah and I suppose that's kind of explains all the other stuff I do the activism um but um yeah I mean it is there's a certain sadness because if I look at the person I was before my rape I was a film producer and I had actually had a my, I was going to be producing my first feature film which was bizarrely set in Northern Ireland um and uh yeah obviously then that never happened and kind of the life I'd envisioned for myself then is, is not going to happen right um but you know, I mean, that happens to a lot of people, obviously, you know, it doesn't have to be that they've gone through this kind of trauma, but, you know, we always have visions for what we want to do, and it doesn't ever quite work out that way, but I suppose as long as you're doing what you think is important, what you enjoy doing, which is probably the case for me, then that's, that's important, mm. so, I mean, but when I was six years old, if you asked me what I wanted to be, I'd say I want to be a writer, and I want to have a book published, and now I have. And yeah, you are, and you yeah. are a writer with a book published, and <laughs> yeah. that is just fantastic. Yeah. Um, and and, and your, so your experience from, you know, people who've read it has been positive. Yeah, it's been really positive. But, I mean, you did, uh, you guys asked before, is there a sense of responsibility? And, I, yeah, I do kind of feel like um, there is, and, I, you know, and, the, you know, as, as a rape survivor, like everything, this whole debate about Uber, or, like every single newspaper headline that shows about the topic, I just kind of look at it and you sort of absorb the way that the world talks about the issue and you realize, okay, there's a lot of change that needs to happen. And if you don't speak up and if you don't make people realize the impact of these kinds of crimes, the prevalence of it, how our pervasive, pervading culture can maybe somehow tolerate it or condone it in certain ways or encourage it, um, then, you know, you just don't want that to happen to other people. And when there are other people who are affected, you want them to know that it is possible to recover. Mm. And that's, and that's yeah. that kind of, that's, you mentioned the Clear Lines Festival that you've set up. So yeah. it's bringing together kind of activists and artists and comedians and people to cut like that to kind of like put, give, just give it a different narrative. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? It's in London, is it? Yeah, it's in London, yeah. So um, we started it in 2015. Um, actually, I started it when I was in the middle of writing the book, and I okay. just, the book was so, you know, it was so all-consuming, and it was, I mean, writing's a very solitary activity. Yeah. You can do pretty much do it without other people. And I just remember feeling like, okay, this is this is really lonely. And, you know, in a, in a bizarre way, you know, one of the things about being a rape victim is that it's an incredibly lonely experience. You pretty much feel like nobody else knows what you're going through, and you're kind of in this personal hell. Um, and, and obviously, I, I did recover, um, but then when I was writing the book, I'm like, no, I'm just kind of putting myself back into this incredibly isolating, uh, you know, existence again. So 
I was like, well, okay, I need to be able to do something that allows me to work with other people. And along the way, I kind of realized there are lots of other writers and theater makers, <clears throat> artists, standard comedians, um, you know, all sorts of um, people that are working on this issue, a lot of whom are survivors themselves, and they just want to use their art, their creativity um, to kind of address what happened to them and, and to speak out. So. Um, I just realized, okay, well, why don't we create a space where all these people can come together? Because I know there's also a huge audience out there who are survivors of this kind of experience, because, mm -hmm. you know, one in five women is going to be a victim of at least an attempted rape, statistically. So, um, you know, it's not just the victims, it's their friends and their family. Um, so there's a lot of people out there who want to engage with that art. So I'm like, well, let's just kind of create a festival for that to happen. Um, but the narrative was very much like we wanted to replace the shame and the silence that's often associated with rape and sexual assault with um, insight, understanding and community. Um, so it's about kind of community and solidarity and celebrating I suppose the capacity for um, for creativity um, to to deal with this kind of trauma and um, celebrating the opportunity for us to come together and find a sense of solidarity. That's mm. so great! Like, what a great way of combining kind of like the being alone, like during the writing process, with kind of like something just so positive and like. And how, what's the when is the event and when can people get tickets? Oh, so it'll be December second um, and third. Okay. And um, we're probably going to release the program and tickets at the very beginning of November. So we're ju we literally just decided last week, like, are we going to do it this year? Are we going to do it? And I'm like, I mean, I'm super busy, but we're yeah. like, you know what? A lot of people are asking. And like every time people read the book or they kind of read about me in the media, they're like, oh, we want to find out about Clear Lines. So yeah. and we're like, now let's just do it. So, um, so yeah, we decided last week we're just starting to announce it on social media. And then the tickets and everything will be released beginning of November. Okay. Yeah. And you've got the lineup all sorted? Uh, no. No. <laughs> no. Um, so contact me if you're interested. Contact Clear Lines. But no, I mean, I have, a bit, I have a sense of what we'd like to have happen. It's only two days. So it's just like, oh, there's so much we could talk about. Yeah. But like, how do we actually boil it down to two days? Um, but, you know, a lot of people have been interested in making Clear Lines happen in Ireland or in the States. Um, and we're definitely open to that or happening in other parts of the UK. So... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and um, so what's next for you? Obviously, you've got Clear Lines coming up in December. You're pr promoing Dark Chapter at the moment. Is there another book coming up? Oh my god, books! Um, <laughs> I would love to get started in my next book, but I just don't have the headspace for it. Um, and I understand. I mean, a lot of authors have multi-book deals, and I understand that that's a certain kind of security. But I'm just like God. I would never want to have that deadline for the new book hanging over me. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, I know what the next book is going to be. It's going to be historical. Um, and I basically want it to be something completely unrelated to my own life um, because so much of this book is from my own life and having to promote it and do all the publicity is like very much about my own life. So I just want to do something completely different. Um, so yeah, um, that's all I'm going to say. So it's historical and I'm hoping I can get started on that in 2018. Just So I'm like, okay, this year I'll see out 2017 and promote our chapter and then 2018 starting a new book. Sounds yeah. like you're incredibly busy. You were mentioning beforehand your PhD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was on, yeah, that's on hold for a bit, but I'm supposed to go back in a few weeks. But yeah, I'm at the LSE in the media and communications department, and I'm looking at how rape survivors are using social media to share their stories and find a community online, I suppose. Um, and I'm, there's an Irish documentary that I'm in called Unbreakable on TV3. So that's, um, that's actually about to air in a few days. So hopefully off the back of that I mean that that's had a pretty big response in Ireland just in terms of people realizing the impact of rape and you know and and those kinds of um that kind of activism around feminist issues is really kind of coming to the fore in Ireland yeah. so I'm kind of hoping to 
maybe be a part of that or, you know, help with um, certain things, certain changes happening. There's um, some great writers over there as well. Like Louise O'Neill, she's written mm, really, like, asking for it's yeah, an incredible book yeah, about rape as well. Which yeah. Is, yeah, and she's a good, good scene in that sort of, not scene, but you know what I mean, like, yeah. good people to work with. Yeah, well, I mean, there's some, we, there was just announced last night that there's going to be the referendum um, to, leave, to potentially legalise oh, yeah, yeah, abortion, yeah, yeah. which is a huge deal in Ireland, so... I didn't even um, know that was kind of, like, on the cards for it. I know, obviously, that, I've heard the, of the campaign, but I'm glad that I didn't think it was yeah. likely at yeah, all. Yeah, I'm surprised yeah, also. Yeah. I just was like, what? Is that actually yeah. happening? So, yeah. What um, a great thing to be involved in as an yeah. activist. Like, that would be... Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I'm not personally involved in it, but you never know. Yeah. <laughs> but you're, exactly, um, you're adding such positive contribution to, um, to women's rights, you know, across the world and honestly the book is is so needed well thanks thanks and i think the other thing is when you mention abortion it's just all those issues are connected because obviously uh, you know i mean if it's not even just abortion like if if you experience a rape like it has a massive impact on the rest of your life just your career is going to be affected your your relationships and your potential to be a mother all that's going to be affected and obviously of course we need abortion in a world where rape exists right so the fact that people don't understand that is just kind of like i'm like i don't understand how people just don't see that so and the fact that the lawmakers that decide that it's kind of like um, are usually men yeah hugely hugely frustrating yeah 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 exactly so well hopefully you know between us all we can affect some really positive mm. change and yeah. i think dark chapters yeah really succeeding in doing well, thank that thank you Thanks. so um You've obviously you've you mentioned that you produce films and you you before that you studied folklore, uh, yeah. Irish folklore, which is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> and interesting. What do you what do you think it is about stories that appeals to you? Because obviously that's kind of been what you what do you think it is about stories that? I mean, I think it's it's that's what makes us human, right? The fact that we can tell stories. I mean, you know, we live in an age now where. I mean, the tech industry is just, there's so much money in the tech industry. And um, I, I always t- say to people, like, okay, I suppose copywriters are, you know, you can make, as you guys know, you can make money being a copywriter. But, uh, you know, I'm always like, as, as a non copywriter, as a writer who's just writing creative stuff for the most part, like, I, I can't really earn a living, you know, off of that. So I'm just like, well, that's a bit ridiculous. Because if I was really good at coding or computer programming or something, then, like, I wouldn't ever have to worry about not having a salary because our society somehow places this huge financial value in the tech industry and in these certain skills but like why is computer programming and coding more valuable than storytelling or writing right human experience yeah exactly and like you know people have been telling stories since you know since we were humans right um if you think about you know neanderthals sitting around the campfire neanderthals are I guess not Homo sapiens. Anyway, um, <laughs> but you know, yeah, yeah, I'm sure Neanderthals told stories as well as Homo sapiens, right? Um, but um, yeah, I mean, so that's kind of what makes us human, and and I think you know to be able to tell those stories and to experience things and then kind of transform that into um, you know into a story that other people can listen to and then relate to and project their own imagination onto is is incredibly important. Otherwise, we just end up becoming a bunch of you know consumers of apps and. Um, you know, people that are dictated, whose lives are dictated by whatever algorithm, you know, yeah. which, um, puts a whole bunch of products in front of us, right? Um, you know, and obviously, you know, the publishing industry is a bit weird. Any creative industry is weird. It's essentially taking stories and creativity and turning that into a product, effectively, right? You know, my book, as much as it comes from my own life and comes from my own, you know, creativity is it's a product that yeah. needs to be sold right um so so the we're you know and obviously we look at all the stuff that's being created by netflix and you know all this like very kind of innovative television that's happening that's still still a product right yeah. so um 
that's why I have a little bit of unease about the creative industries in terms of, okay, we're commodifying people's talents. Um, and but it, that's a way to get stories told to a large audience, but only certain kinds of stories, only certain storytellers are going to have access to be able to get their stories out there to audiences, right? Yeah. Um, which brings in the whole question of kind of diversity in class and, you know, just how difficult it is to get to the creative industries. But yeah. It seems to be point. moving in a good yeah. direction with, like, so much more, so many more stories being told. And, and like, TV is great. Yeah. And, like, yeah, and, like, more diverse voices are getting out there which is great yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah so sorry that was sort of a long-winded no, no i liked it i liked like hearing totally the passion yeah. about the creative industry <laughs> <laughs> um just just in general like um it you know if you're if you're doing all of this book promotion and you're doing you know you, you've you've obviously written this incredible book and you're off to south africa today for a book festival yeah, and all this kind yeah. of stuff. you're obviously clearly a very busy person and i just wondered how you find time to how did you find the time to fit the writing into such a busy a busy life of all this organising and stuff like that? Um, so I kind of, when I decided to write the book, I was like, that's it. Like, I quit my job. And, oh, yeah. and again, I was in a privileged position to have enough savings to be able to do that. So that brings on the previous question about who can write books. Course, you know, you have yeah. to have, a, you know, unfortunately, it tends to be people who are financially comfortable. So anyway, I... I I thankfully had enough savings, so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to quit my job and just focus on writing the book. So for kind of a year, year and a half, all I did really was my master's in creative writing and writing the book, and that was that was it. I didn't okay. do anything else. Um, so, which, looking back on it now, I'm like, oh, that was such a nice, you know, yeah. like, focused period of my life, and now I'm, like, juggling a whole bunch of things. But, um, yeah, so, uh, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm thinking about the next book. I'm like, okay, can I go back to that? Like, can I just, like, cut all this other stuff out of my life and just really focus my mind on telling that next story and I don't know I mean I guess you have to right because if you want to be an author you gotta write books you yeah, know multiple yeah. books so um so yeah so, but we'll find out in 2018 you know? yeah. <laughs> um, I was so excited to hear your next story well, and we're so excited much. to have you at the riffraff yes. yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to that yeah. yeah it's gonna be a good night we've got some some other good authors on to yourself so yeah. thank you so much for coming along thank you, thank you. Yes. the riffraff podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards Come say hey at the-riffraff.com.